I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America, chartered by Congress, to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this week, we take a deep dive into President Trump's executive order temporarily suspending refugee admission to the United States and travel from several countries in the Middle East. We'll also look at recent developments and how the courts may ultimately rule on the important constitutional and statutory issues. Joining me to discuss this fascinating and important question are two of America's leading experts on immigration and constitutional law. Peter Spiro holds the Charles Wiener Chair in International Law Temple University Beasley School of Law. He's the author of Beyond Citizenship, American Identity After Globalization, and At Home in Two Countries, The Past and Future of Dual Citizenship. Anil Callan is Associate Professor of Law at the Drexel University Thomas R. Klein School of Law. He is Chair of the New York City Bar Association's International Human Rights Committee and a visiting scholar at the Center for the Study of Law and Society at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. Peter, Anil, thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Jeff. Glad to be with you. Thank you for having us. Wonderful. Well, there, uh, I really want to take a deep dive into these important issues so that our listeners fully understand them. And let's begin with the procedural questions. Uh, Anil, there have been several lower court opinions, and they're heading up through the courts. Explain to us how various district courts might consider the issues, when the appellate courts might get involved, and and whether this might make it up to the Supreme Court, and when. So as you noted, uh, the Trump administration, President Trump, signed his executive order on Friday, January 27th. Um, And immediately after that was issued, the border officials began detaining individuals who were arriving, who were already in transit, and arriving at international airports across the country. Um, So a number of Uh, Different groups sort of had mobilized uh, to arrange representation for people at the airports and filed lawsuits um, pretty quickly, within hours. Um, And on Saturday evening, um, after an emergency hearing, the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of New York issued an emergency stay of removal of a number of people who had arrived at at John F. Kennedy Airport in New York. Um, And that order... uh, which was on be, the, the lawsuit was filed on behalf of a class action uh, uh, seeking to represent a class of people similarly situated, um, imp- instituted a nationwide stay against removal of individuals with um, refugee applications that have been approved or holders of valid immigrant and non-immigrant visas and other individuals who were legally otherwise legally authorized to enter the United States. Um, Very soon after that, a number of other district courts around the country also issued stays of removal. Some of them uh, also stayed um, and blocked detention. and, and some of them, at least one required uh, access to counsel for people who were being held and not permitted to enter. Um, so those were all issued as uh, stays, um, the, the pending further proceedings. Um, it's not clear what appellate proceedings might in fact actually uh, follow. Um, there were widespread reports that uh, the uh, adherence to these orders by agency officials was mixed around the country. So um, that remains a little unclear. As this was an, but this is an early preliminary stage of the case. 
Um, there hasn't been full briefing and argument as yet. Okay, thanks so much for that. Uh, Peter, you can chime in on the procedural question if you like, but why don't we, if, you, if, you, if not, why don't we jump right into the core of the constitutional issues? Um, in time recently, uh, you argued that courts have a long history of upholding portions of immigration law that discriminates on the basis of race and nationality. You note that as far back as 1889, the court upheld the exclusion of Chinese laborers and more recent rulings have upheld similar discrimination. Tell us why you believe that these orders are, are not inconsistent with the Constitution. Well, I'm not sure I'd say they're not inconsistent, but they're, I would say that they're not clearly unconstitutional. And the reason is that there is a there's sort of a parallel constitutional universe that applies to immigration. And it's one in which the Constitution applies in diminished form or not at all. And so there are a series of uh, precedents that date back to the late 19th century, but come up pretty much to the present day, under which the courts have quite explicitly taken a much more deferential stance with respect to classifications and lack of process that would otherwise never pass muster in any other context. So the the um, administration and any administration that's defending a classification or a procedure in the immigration context starts off with in a lot better, with really a head start relative to uh, any other area of the law. Thanks so much for that, Peter. So Anil, uh, what do you make of Peter's argument that the president has historically gotten broad deference when it comes to immigration, and there's also this 1889 ruling upholding the exclusion of Chinese laborers? If there are uh, strong constitutional arguments against the immigration order, what are they? So Peter is quite correctly describing the historical origins and development of the so-called plenary power doctrine in immigration, which, as he mentions, gives broad deference to um, the political branches uh, and the normal outside of what the normal rules would be um, for for not involving non-citizens. Um, I think the, there are a couple of things that might qualify the extent to which the plenary power doctrine as it's historically developed would still apply. One is that a lot of the rules that uh, those original cases, as you mentioned, one is from 1889 governing Chinese exclusion. Um, others uh, have developed in the context of the Cold War, the, the immediate aftermath of the World War II, the Cold War and the Red Scare. Um, these are periods that predate much of the development of the right revolution, for example. And so to the extent that um, we are in a different kind of constitutional universe more generally and, and courts have not yet revisited and the Supreme Court in particular has not yet revisited those older uh, deferential principles, it doesn't seem to me that it's a given that they would necessarily just go back and reiterate those principles again today in our contemporary period. They might they may very well might, um, but th th there's reason to think that you know the plenary power doctrine has long been criticized. The other thing I would you, you know, note if, that's such a good point that I forgive me for interrupting, but I want to just stop and get Peter's response there because we'll move on to the the next constitutional arguments. But, but what about um, Anil's claim that there are all these cases from the 1970s? I remember uh, Graham and Richardson and so forth, which do suggest that. Um, classifications based on alienage or constitutionally suspect, how to reconcile those with the older 19th century cases and, and what of Anil's argument that they've been superseded? Right. It's quite a paradox that in some contexts, 
uh, alienage actually is a constitutional advantage in terms of triggering greater scrutiny of state level discrimination. So not federal and not in the immigration context. I do take Anil's point about uh, many of these cases dating from an era in which rights were uh, poorly or not established at all in other contexts. Plenary power, though, does um, has extended into the modern era. So a key case for purposes of considering the order is the 1977 decision in Fialo versus Bell, which is a modern era case and in which the court quite expressly says, quote unquote, Congress regularly makes rules that would be unacceptable if applied to citizens. And and even as recently as 2015 in the Kerry versus Din case, we've we've had a repetition of these plenary power rifts. So it uh, I, so there I think it's more than just saying, well, these are from musty old 19th century cases that uh, just reflected the times in which they were decided. That it, it really does extend up to the present day, which is again not to say that the executive order is constitutionally airtight uh, for reasons that I think go beyond the doctrine. Uh, so I, th I think there, there are opportunities here for a constitutional challenge that really work more off the atmospherics of the way in which the order is adopted and the surrounding controversy than anything in the doctrine itself. Great. That's very helpful to identify the uh, tensions there. Now, Anil, let's dig into some of the more specific constitutional claims, uh, which range from uh, claims involving the First Amendment's protection against establishment of religion to the Equal Protection Clause. Sure. And I think that, you know, this sort of flows nicely from Peter's point. I mean, this this is a this kind of initiative is somewhat unprecedented and the, the executive order sweeps very broadly. Um, you know, one claim that has been raised in these cases concerns whether um, there, the, the discrimination against um, uh, between uh, individuals on the basis of national origin would, would warrant uh, heightened scrutiny from an equal protection uh perspective, um, or on the basis of religion. Uh, the, the, the order purports to ban all, uh, excuse me, um, uh, suspend all refugee admissions, um, but then leaves a, a carve out after the, the period of time in which it's resumed um, for uh, claims made by individuals on the basis of religious-based persecution, um, and that if they're from a minority religion. And, and that might raise uh, either equal protection questions or uh, even um, First Amendment questions under the religion clause, clauses. Thank you very much for that. Uh, Peter, what about that carve out and what about the claims that it raises First and uh, 14th Amendment issues? Yeah, I don't know that the, I understand um, that there is a prioritization that's given to uh, minorities, religious minorities. So it's not expressly for Christians, although as applied, it certainly works out that way. I, I don't, there are a couple issues here. I mean, it certainly helps any constitutional claim to the extent that you can invoke the First Amendment Establishment Clause. On the other hand, there's going to be a difficulty finding an appropriate plaintiff um, for this kind of claim and the fact that it just prioritizes rather than bars, other claims from being made, I think makes it 
it's going to make it tricky to to play out the First Amendment uh, claim here. And even if it were struck down to the extent that the executive order were severable, that is, the uh, an unconstitutional part could be um, could be carved out, or or the executive order could simply be reissued without the offending clause. It wouldn't go really to the core of the uh, order and the travel ban on nationals of the seven listed countries. Uh, thanks, and Anil. How much uh, does the First Amendment claim rely on the text of the law, which seems to treat Christians differently than Muslims? And how much relies on the extra judicial statements, like that of President Trump and and Rudolph Giuliani, that the uh, former acting attorney general invoked in explaining her decision not to enforce the law in the first place? Yeah, I think the extra um, textual statements are pretty important to the claim. Uh, the, the the you have the initial statement um, that uh, on the campaign trail by Donald Trump that he was instituting a total and complete shutdown of Muslims, um, and then later in the campaign when he spoke about um, the, the a, a variant of this kind of proposal, he referred to them interchangeably. And then, of course, as you mentioned, uh, Rudolph Giuliani's uh, uh, comments that essentially what over the weekend that essentially you know well. The, uh, Mr. Trump came to, initially said Muslim ban, and then he asked me, "How can I do that in a way that would be legal?" Um, you know that does suggest pretext. Uh, will that is that would a court credit that? I, I mean, that's that would remain to be seen. Thanks, Peter. Do the extrajudicial statements uh, matter, or should we only evaluate the text of the law? Well, I think it's part of the atmospherics here on this particular point. I don't know that it's enough, uh, given that. You only have seven countries. They are predominantly Muslim, but it's on the basis of nationality. Um, you also have some pretty strong precedents here, including from the Bush and Obama era um, with respect to special registration schemes that applied almost entirely and actually more broadly uh, uh, to uh, uh, Muslim uh, nationals of, of Muslim majority countries. That was uh, there were 25 designated uh, countries for this special scheme, 24 of which were Muslim majority, the uh, 25th of which was North Korea. And that and that scheme was upheld as against an uh, equal protection challenge. So I think it's, it's tricky. Again, it's tricky to, uh, it's tricky to make these claims and by no means are they slam dunk. Thanks so much for that. All right, let's turn from the First Amendment to the equal protection and statutory claims. Uh, the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 bans all discrimination against immigrants on the basis of national origin, which replaced the old uh, system which allowed such discrimination. And the Equal Protection Clause uh, s closely scrutinizes any classifications based on alienage. Anil, uh, what are the statutory and constitutional arguments uh, about this uh, order violating these equal protection notions? So the, from a constitutional perspective, the issue would be whether or not a, dis, a distinctions based on national origin would in fact actually be uh, prohibited by the Equal Protection Clause. I think those claims are complicated and they're they, they not claims that have arisen in this context, this kind of context before. But there is also this provision in um, the Immigration and Nationality Act that was adopted in 1965, which provides that no person can be discriminated against in the issuance of an immigrant visa because of the person's race, sex, nationality, 
place of birth or place of residence. And that could be interpreted as limiting or qualifying the ability of the executive branch to institute the kind of distinction that it has in this executive order. Um, the, the text only applies to immigrant visas, um, but it, it, it could be the case that in fact it's actually understood uh, more broadly. Um, so that's, you know, th this is not a legal provision that has uh, been uh, raised or discussed much uh, in this context that there really hasn't been occasion for this kind to, for it to be considered. But it would, in fact, be uh, relevant to determining whether the scope of this, of what's the scope of the president's authority under the provisions he has invoked. Thanks for that. Peter, your thoughts on the statutory and constitutional questions. Does the fact that the text of the law only applies to immigrant visas make it hard to apply in this case? And what about the equal protection claims as well? So I think the Section 202 argument is a credible one. So on its face, it uh, prohibits um, discrimination on the basis of nationality. It is only with respect to immigrant visas. And so I think it would be difficult to extend it beyond that, given that it's uh, it's express qualification. It's also difficult maybe to apply it here because it was clearly intended for another purpose, and that was to uh, uh, nullify the extremely discriminatory quota system that was in place under the 1924 National Origins Act, under which uh, nationals of Southern and Eastern European countries had very small quotas relative to Northern and uh, Western European immigrants. So it was, it was pretty clearly not adopted to be deployed in a context like this. And, and that provision it's up against is Section 212F, under which the president has the authority to suspend the entry of any alien or class of aliens whose uh, entry into the United States he determines is detrimental to the interest of the United States. So there you've got quite an express and really unconstrained power that's been allocated to the president. But I, that said, I think there is a credible argument here, and it would give the court something to hang a ruling on that, at least with respect to immigrant visas, would qualify the scope of the order. So that's that. That there's something to work with there, I think. On the constitutional equal, equal protection um, claim, this is a context in which the courts have been extremely deferential to the executive, to Congress and the executive branch um, in a way that, in much more so than in any domestic context. That said, I think there's maybe a possible uh, claim here to the extent that this classification in the executive order singling out these seven countries really is a pretty irrational measure. It's it's actually pretty clear that the executive order by singling out nationals of these countries serves no counter-terror purpose. And that, I think, will be transparent to the courts. There are many, many experts on record to that effect. You've now got more than a thousand foreign service officers saying that not only does the executive order not advance any counter-terror objective, it actually detracts from national security values. And so I do think there is some possibility that even if we accept the plenary power as establishing this very deferential stance on the part of the judiciary to the Congress and the president, that the courts will find this so off the wall that um, that they could strike it down 
on an equal protection basis. Very interesting. Okay, Neil, we've really joined the arguments well here. On the statutory point, Peter says that this 1965 prohibition against discrimination on the basis of national origin clashes with another statute, which gives the president authority to bar aliens that he considers detrimental to the national interest. So how do you reconcile those competing statutory claims? And then second, what do you make of his interesting suggestion that even if there's not heightened scrutiny, as the lawyers call it, for alienage, this law might be struck down as simply irrational because it doesn't serve its purported counterterrorism purposes? Yeah, with respect to the constitutional claim, I think there's quite a bit of merit in what Peter says about uh, the rationality of the law and whether um, or of the of the distinction and whether it would pass uh, muster even at a base on the rational basis level. Um, in terms of the statute, it is the, the provision that the is the basis on which the executive order rests is Section 212F of the of the Immigration and Nationality Act. And that's an earlier provision from, I believe, the 1952 um, uh, statute, the Immigration and Nationality Act. Um, it's really broad um, on its face. Uh, it, in, if you took it literally, it would be uh, very open-ended and and could be read in could be interpreted in a manner that, if it were applied to its logical limits, would eviscerate other provisions of the law. Um, and so, one question is: is that the 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 Equality, the non-discrimination provision um, comes later. So the ordinary later in time rule would be that that would, um, you know, govern and it certainly doesn't repeal that earlier authority, but it may in fact operate to limit that authority um, to some extent. And I think that uh, there may be other limits on that authority as well from a statutory perspective. Very interesting. So, P Peter, you... Um as we moot this, at this point in the debate, how would you sum up the weight of the statutory and constitutional arguments against the law? As, as I've heard it, you've, you've expressed some skepticism about the First Amendment claim, but have thought that uh, deferential constitutional review, as well as this uh, competing statutory claim, might get some traction in the courts. But but how would you characterize the balance of the arguments? Yeah, so I think it's... it's um it's this is just one that's going to be very hard to predict. I think ordinarily uh, uh, discrimination on the basis of nationality and other forms of discrimination are 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 have historically always been upheld by the courts. And so, if one were just going on the uh, the track the historical track record, then then uh, one couldn't be too sanguine about um, uh, these the, these constitutional claims prevailing. But we are in a different era now. And so I, uh, I think there is the possibility for some traction, um, not only because uh, various aspects of the order appear to be simply irrational in a very obvious way, uh, which would embolden the courts, I think, who, who which are very um, wary of getting into anything involving national security for fear that they're going to get it wrong. Well, I think this is one case where they could be fairly confident that uh, it, uh, scaling back the executive order or striking it down altogether, that they wouldn't be screwing up the country's national security. So I think that's one factor which might, which points to some potential, at least for a constitutional claim, uh, where the, otherwise I would, I wouldn't have, where otherwise one might not have much hope. Um, I, I think also there are two other factors here, which can give 
which make it more likely that the, the constitutional claims will have some traction. One is the obviously slipshod way in which it was adopted by the White House. I mean, it is so clear that uh, that the order was not appropriately vetted uh, within the executive branch before it was issued. And I think that will offend uh, judicial sensibilities that that law, a lot of laws about process. And it's quite clear to any judge who's reading the newspapers and all judges are read newspapers that this was not, that this was um, adopted in a procedurally irregular manner. Now, that's not something that they can do anything with in in their reasoning in uh, in 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 striking down the order. But it's part of the it's part of the backdrop and it's something they can that they can't unlearn. And then secondly, I think that the um, the spontaneous protests that uh, were triggered by the order are also something that may embolden the courts and I think is part of the explanation for why you have the five orders at the district court level over the weekend. And that is that the courts, when they feel like they've got some significant public su- support behind them, that just makes it makes it easier for them to get to, 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 to a consistent result that they don't feel like they necessarily are putting the court's institutional legitimacy on the line by pushing back against the executive branch. And so I think that could be a factor here also. Thanks so much for that. Anil, Peter is neutrally assessing what he thinks the chances of these claims succeeding in the courts is. And I'd like you to do the same thing. We, we've talked about the arguments for and against the constitutional and statutory claims, but do you think that on balance uh, courts will buy them or not? I mean, I think I agree with with most of what Peter said. It's particular that it would be very hard to predict. Um, a couple of things to to add in considerations about why these cases might get some traction, in addition to what he's noted, um, in terms of offending judicial sensibilities, the other thing that, depending on what facts come to light that might offend judicial sensibilities, is that there's relatively widespread reports that when after the stays were issued over the weekend, um, agency officials did not fully comply with those um, judicial orders. Uh, the reasons may be varied and we don't know necessarily the full, there's not been full factual development of that. But depending on what comes to light, that may be something that also increases judicial skepticism or, or hackles. The other thing that I think might in fact actually bear in, you know, play into this is simply the, the human stories that lie behind the abstraction of um, what the, this executive order does. I mean, already we have coming to light lots and lots of stories of the hardships visited on people who quite evidently don't pose any sort of threat to the security of the United States. And I think that a lot more stories like that will come to light. And that can, and historically all, often does, play a role in how courts understand these issues, particularly in the immigration context. Uh, thank you for that. Peter, what about those human stories? Uh, have any struck you in particular, and do they move judges? And what should listeners think as they evaluate them? I agree completely with Daniel about about um, how the human factor comes into play in immigration cases. And it has often been the case, especially in the lower courts, but sometimes also in the Supreme Court, that the court will undertake uh, interpretive gymnastics in uh, applying a statute so, so as to come out with a result that they see 
as just in a particular case. So many of these cases, uh, leaving aside the executive order, so many immigration cases involve extremely sympathetic petitioners. And, and judges are people too, and they don't like to see clear wrongs visited as a result of their uh, judgments. And so uh, that's one reason why I think actually that the statutory argument um, may have more traction than maybe it would warrant on a sort of objective view is that it gives the courts a hook for doing what they see as right, even if as a matter of just straight up statutory interpretation, it's not it's not the um, the better answer. So I think that's actually a really important that's going to be an important that could be an important factor in how these cases shake out. OK, both of you are being so thoughtful and nuanced that we're having some convergence. But I want to make sure our listeners really hear the best arguments uh, in favor of the legality and constitutionality of these laws. Uh, Anil, if you were channeling I don't know, a, a Supreme Court justice upholding the order, which justice would it be and, and what would the opinion look like? Uh, well, I wouldn't, I don't know which justice it would be. It would be probably one of the justices traditionally identified as the conservative justices. Um, and I think that uh, what it would what the decision would say would would rest on the very principles that Peter has identified, the longstanding deference to the political branches um, in the context of immigration, uh, coupled with a claim and assertion about national security, um, you know, how closely they're prepared to scrutinize uh, the executive branch's claims with respect to national security. You know, that's uh, historically, certainly, um, that's not the courts have been very deferential. So that's you have both uh, sets of principles sort of intersecting in the purported justification for this executive order. So I would expect a, a decision that sounds in deference. Great. Um, uh, P- Peter, um, let's channel Justice Kennedy and uh, Judge Neil Gorsuch. We'll be podcasting about Judge Gorsuch next week. Uh, he's written passionately about religious liberty claims. Um, how might a Judge Gorsuch and a Justice Kennedy rule on the constitutional and legal issues of the, involving the immigration orders? Well, Justice Kennedy has been very deferential to the to the executive branch in the context both of foreign relations and of uh, immigration, the regulation of immigration. So the the decision upholding this executive order would pretty much write itself. I mean, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of material in the precedents uh, which could be drawn from to that to that result. That said, there are a couple of um, there are a couple of decisions which would supply some material to the other. Uh, to, to to finding it um, constitutionally invalid, and so there it wouldn't be completely um, out of whole cloth that that decision would uh, be um, uh, written. There's a case called Zadvidas, which is from uh, 2001, which has some language which uh, which appears to which casts doubt on plenary power. Um, and then there are a couple of cases before the court now, unrelated to the executive order, which I think take on a new significance in light of the executive order because uh, because they could be a vehicle for uh, for rolling back um, the scope of plenary power. In particular, there's a case called Lynch versus Morales Santana, which uh, deals with an equal protection claim 
um, uh, an, on a gender discriminatory provision in the Nationality Act. So, so that's um, so there's there, as is often the case with respect to the Supreme Court considering a question like that. There's 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 stuff on both sides and. It essentially comes down to a political question, which is why not political question in the doctrinal sense, but making a choice. And that's why I think actually the atmospherics are so important in a case like this. As to Neil Gorsuch, I haven't had a chance to read into his immigration related uh, jurisprudence, if any. So um, but my guess would be that to the extent that he's a traditionalist, that the deference in the Scalia mode, that there would be that he would be um, drawn to uh, defer to the executive branch in this context. Great, because uh, I think our listeners may be interested. Uh, Anil, uh, please channel Justice Kennedy and Judge Gorsuch on this question. Yeah, I think I agree with with much of what Peter said. I don't have a whole lot to add, really. I mean, the, the, I think that it, there's a likelihood if it, uh, you know if if Justice Kennedy were uncomfortable with uh, the the executive order, um, I would expect a decision that identifies relevant constitutional principles and concerns, but ultimately rests on a statutory claim of one kind, either the non-discrimination provision or maybe that certain aspects of the executive order are beyond the delegated authority under Section 212F or something like that. That would be consistent with how um, Justice Kennedy and other justices in the modern era have tried to deal with constitutional questions that bother them, but they're not prepared necessarily to, uh, you know, overturn uh, longstanding doctrine. Wonderful. All right. It is time, gentlemen, for closing arguments. And uh, this is the question. Do you believe that President Trump's executive order involving immigration violates federal law and the Constitution or not, and why? Peter. I do think it does, and uh, this is a question beyond the doctrine. I think it's uh, a, it's stupendously misguided in such a way that um, that triggers uh, a constitutional, that should trigger constitutional scrutiny. And so I, I, I believe it should be, and, and just one quick analogy, and that is to the um, counter-terror cases from the, the Guantanamo cases from the 2000s, in which nobody expected the court to push back, and yet the court did um, apply some uh, constitutional constraint in, a, in an unprecedented way, and that was another context in which the executive branch had lost its credibility before the court, and the court felt emboldened as a result to do something that it hadn't done before. And so I am hopeful that that's the, the course that we'll see this um, order take through the courts. Um, and uh, But at the same time, it, because it would involve something new, one can, I, I don't believe that one can confidently predict that result. Thank you for that. Anil, last word to you. Uh, do you believe that the president's immigration order violates federal law and the Constitution or not, and why? Yeah, I do. I think that if there were a, a if you were to imagine a plausible case for a, a initiative that file that runs afoul of the rational basis standard, this may very well might be it. Um, I think that the statutory claims are considerable. Um, that there there are all kinds of things that are being done that we haven't even talked about pursuant to this executive order in terms of uh, can't revocation of existing valid visas and um, suspension of of uh, applications for naturalization and other kinds of 
um, immigration benefits that are being uh, undertaken in the name of this order. Um, there's a provision in here that requires all immigrant uh, future immigration benefits programs of any kind to evaluate the applicant's likelihood of becoming a positively contributing member of society uh, or to make contributions to the national interests. I mean, these are seem to be directly at odds with the statutory scheme that Congress has already set up um, and not really a valid exercise necessarily of the the authority um, that's that 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 Trump has invoked under section 212f thank you so much Peter Spiro and Anil Kalan for an illuminating nuanced and ultimately converging and yet subtly differing uh, take on the important statutory and constitutional issues raised by the president's immigration orders. Uh, and listeners, as always, we've tried to give you the best arguments so that you can make up your own minds. Peter, Anil, thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCDR. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast, live at America's Town Hall, on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, which I'd love to recite, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate, which is more urgently needed than ever. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.